Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise of the Accidental Gods Project, the podcast, the website, and the membership portal that arises from it. We spent the second series finding people who are using these tools in ways that could inspire us to change. And now we're in the third season, in which we're beginning to lay out a vision for the more beautiful future that our hearts know is possible. And my guest this week spends most of her time working in that world of what is and what could be. An existing friend of the podcast, Della Duncan, is the host of the absolutely outstanding Upstream podcast, which definitely ought to be on your must-listen list. She's a student of Joanna Macy's work that reconnects, and she herself is working now as a right livelihood coach, which she'll talk about in more depth later in the podcast. Mainly, though, she was one of my most inspiring tutors at Schumacher College when I did the Masters in Regenerative Economics. And it was this angle that I wanted to explore today. If our economic system is our value system, how can we shape it differently? So with that in mind, people of the podcast, please welcome Della Duncan. So Della Duncan, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. How is lockdown, dribbling end of lockdown working for you? I am based in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California, and we've had a different experience than other parts in the U.S., so I haven't, I haven't felt that it's been such a pandemic as elsewhere, and my sense right now is that we are reopening a little too quickly, a little too soon. From folks I've spoken with, there's actually a resurgence of COVID cases mm. in California, so I am seeing our restaurants and bars and places reopening and just wondering what that impact is going to be on our health. So it feels a little strange for me, uh, and I'm definitely feeling concerned for health of folks, but also, yeah, the health of people's businesses and mental health as well. So just holding a lot of concern for others and the local economies here. And it seems I listened to a podcast with... Daniel Thorson, who had his 75 days of a silent retreat and then kind of emerged into the middle of COVID. And he was talking about that extraordinary experience of coming out of 75 days of silent retreat into a world where there was a culture war going on, but he didn't know what the rules were. And he had this three-hour interview with the New York Times. And just before he went in to do it, he noticed that somebody said that Republicans didn't think wearing masks was a good thing. So he said, at least I had one anchor in this sea of unknowing of what it was okay or not okay to say. And in Britain, I don't think the coronavirus has as much been part of the culture war. Has it felt like that in California or are you sufficiently insulated from the more crazy aspects of people who say it's not happening? From what I've seen in the political space, such as the U.S. president and vice president and folks choosing not to wear masks, the way that I make sense of that is toxic masculinity, this kind of sense of like, I, I don't need to, there's nothing wrong with me, maybe even a little social Darwinian 
aspect to it. Like it's I'm right. immune or, you know, I'm somehow a superhuman and I don't need to. Um, right. And, and so that is concerning, but I would also say that I don't know if the uh, Republicans in general would uh, all Republicans don't wear masks at all, because I think there's so many intersections between this, this, and I think those who are older or immunocompromised certainly are more worried, mm-hmm. regardless of whatever their political affiliation is. Um, but then there's also what are people's certain businesses or business interests. And I feel a lot of sadness for folks who have to choose between their business and their livelihood or their health. And I've been seeing yeah. that more so yeah. in the neoliberal countries where health care isn't a right uh, and also where we're not getting enough support from the government to keep businesses open and uh, support people while we're in lockdown. So I read that in 2016, both the US and the UK had modeled the pandemic and that in the US, by month five in the model, and I assume this was under Obama, they had nationalized the health service, which clearly is not going to happen under the current government. But also I read something popped up on my Facebook feed the other day where some poor old bloke in his late 90s had survived COVID and the whole hospital had gathered to applaud him as he tottered out at the end of it. And then he got a $1.1 million bill. That's 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 functionally insane because he's not going to be able to pay it. What is the point of, of sending that kind of a bill to somebody? So using that as a kind of a springboard, you are a regenerative economist. And at the beginning of this lockdown, I had real hope that we would see a change in the way that neoliberalism worked because they'd suddenly found the magic money tree. It seemed as if they were doing, certainly in Britain, some things that were not entirely stupid and potentially quite useful and that could have helped to rearrange the way that we think of money and the way that we use money and the way that we value each other. And it looks like that may not be going to happen now. But in the spirit of season three and wanting to understand how things could be, was there a point in the last couple of months where you looked forward and thought, if we use this as a pivot point, we could get to somewhere else? And if so, can we maybe flesh out where that somewhere else might be? Yeah, I would say that at the very beginning of the pandemic, I really saw this is a potential disruption to our business as usual and where we could work towards a new way of living, both as individuals, like the individual choices of gardening and people doing kimchi and baking bread and, and, and just having more fun as families. Like I just loved all the videos of families getting together and and then also politically, like there was, there were more calls and renewed calls for policies and ideas that really hadn't gotten a lot of traction, such as universal basic income, universal services, things like that. But now it just feels like the the lockdown and the pandemic is just it drags on and on. And I really do worry about this effect on people's mental health. And really, I worry about the effect on small businesses and and how they're surviving. I'm just seeing more and more and hearing about more and more small businesses that are closing or going out of business. And I'm just, Mm. I'm worried about that. And I know that Helena Norberg Hodge is putting together the World Localization Day for this Sunday. And I I hope that that kind of renewed interest in 
localizing our economies comes through that because I really do think that's an answer to our regenerative economies, you know, small, making our supply chain shorter and really supporting our small, local and independent businesses. And I'm just, I'm worried about that. I'm not seeing enough interest, both politically and individually in that, that, that I think would be necessary. So if I look right now at the choices that we have, I do see, you know, the, the concern as we reopen, now I know this happens differently in different places, but as we reopen, what are people deciding to keep from their time in, in the quarantine time? And what are people choosing to do differently? Uh, but again, both as individuals and politically. And I just really hope that we don't return to a business as usual and we do have degrowth and we have localizing our economies and more regenerative economic systems. So one point of hope, for example, is I believe it's France decided as they reopen, they're not going to reopen domestic airline flights. And this is hopeful to me yeah, because they decided that anywhere where people could take the train instead, why not take the train instead of Hmm. flying? So they decided to just simply not open domestic flights. And I think that type of thing is really helpful. So if there's other things that we could choose not to reopen that are either really carbon intensive or Mm. exploitative for people or the planet, then that would be really helpful. But, you know, I wonder how much people have the capacity to focus on that and to be active, do activism around that right now. I'm just worried about people's collective capacity right now. Because of the emotional impact and also the financial impact of of the lockdown? Is that where the worry arises? That, and particularly in the United States, the what's happening right now is both the pandemic is revealing structural racism by black and brown people being disproportionately mm. affected, and then also in the pandemic, we're seeing more authoritarian policing around the world, but in mm. the United States, yes. the, the kind of acute examples of the black people being killed by the police uh, and people being inside and really watching this are really activating the anger and frustration and injustice. And then people really calling for justice on that. So we're having multiple levels of frustration, anger, and mental health issues, stress that are compounded. So I do, I do hope that, and and we know that that's connected. We know that structural inequalities and racism is connected to ecological justice yeah. and, and reopening in terms of more regenerative economies. A regenerative economy ought to be both more equitable and sustainable. So I, I mm. guess the hope would be that in our in our calls for reforms, both for police and also for other systems that have racism embedded in them, that we can also call for those ecological um, reasoning for it to be more sustainable as well. You know, for, for us to unite in our causes, to have it be a just transition, both ecologically and in terms of social justice. So if we pretend for a moment that a different person was running the states, which of course is possible in in a while, how, if we looked forward for years, so suppose Trump is no longer here and the, the extraordinary inequities that are deliberately built into the system are available to be overturned, how could you imagine living if everybody pulled together and everybody moved towards a more just system, because things I'm thinking things like the small businesses around here that are folding, 
Some of them were beautiful and lovely, and I could imagine them in a regenerative future, but some of them were definitely part of the extractivist, consumer-based economics that seems to me, you know, it's terribly sad that those people are out of a job, but but selling bits of plastic that were put together in China so that people can have them for a few months and then throw them in the garbage is is not part of a sustainable model. So we need to find ways of helping these people to transition to something that enables everyone to turn towards life. If we could do that without necessarily going into detailed specifics, can you create a vision for the people listening of a world as it could be? Yeah. So one thing when I think about the world as it could be is I think about it as very contextual. I I hesitate to create kind of a one economy model for all of the world or even for all of the U.S. I really would like to think of a thriving and flourishing economy on a very local scale. So what it would look like for where you are might be different from where I am. And so, so there's but it's, the value systems, the value systems, would, be systems would be similar. So, so just to say that the, the visual look of it would be contextualized based on what are the what 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 are the things that the people are interested in there? What is the local history and culture and heritage? And then also what are the local industries, for example? So I do think that would be contextual. Um, I do think that the overall guiding principle, that value that you're talking about, would be turning towards life. And I think it would be in every decision, in every moment, it would be, is this life sustaining? Is this life thriving? Or is this life destructive? So so asking, how do we turn towards life in this moment? So if we do have a local independent business, like you're describing, that is somehow extractive or exploitative in some way for people on the planet, how could those folks involved with that turn towards life in that? How could they, what could they change about their business that would make it more sustainable, equitable, and regenerative? So it would be a turn towards life in that. It would be a turn towards life in the local governance. It would be a turn towards life if any conflicts arise. So it's a reorientation towards life. So life thriving, life flourishing as the goal of the economy and of the ways of being. It also, though, will require another value would be systems thinking that, you know, in in this um, wake up moment, that folks would have the capacity to think systemically. So part of what you're saying about this local business, for example, that's not considering the the waste or it's not considering where it's coming from, Right systemic thinking would help that. It helps us to see the the long-term, both in terms of time and in terms of space, relationships that is embedded in different products or different services. So we would, if we could wake up and see systemically, we would think all the way from where this product or thing came from and all the way to where it's going. And what are all the impacts on both humans and the more than human world? So to think systemically and in in uh, Buddhist terms, this would be interbeing. So this would be recognizing our interbeing. So that would be another value that I think would be helpful. But the other one is this idea of balancing. So I don't think when I think about this this vision that you're asking me to think about, I don't see it as one static uh, vision. I don't see it as we finally have balance as if it's a noun. I see of it as balancing that it's actually more about having feedback loops that are faster and faster ha- that are, that help us correct when we're noticing that there is suffering inherent in the system. 
there's a group of people that are suffering or somehow the system is inequitable or it's actually causing a knock-on effect on an ecosystem or on an other than human being. So it would be having a having a lo- localized economy that are balancing and they're returning towards that life thriving and life supportive when they go off track because we will go off track. We will make decisions that are unhelpful. Mm-hmm. We will have problems that arise and it's in our ability to be mindful and recognize them and then to respond appropriately when we notice them and to come back to that turning towards life and using systemic thinking also to do that. Brilliant. Thank you. So one of the things that I run up against if I'm discussing this with people who are perhaps not fully committed to a regenerative world is the concept that we're all going to end up basically moving back to the Stone Age because that is the only way to be sustainable is is to be living in mud huts eating grass and clothing ourselves with i don't know fabrics made from from nettle fibers um and that's not attractive and and it seems to me that one of the biggest obstacles that we face is building a sense of a future that is attractive and is still exactly as you described it. It's sustainable, equitable, and regenerative. And it has the feedback loops and it has circularity built in. Without being specific, but from where you live now, have you any sense of, let's take us forward 10 years, and the feedback loops are in place. We don't know where the technology is taking us, so that's a little harder. And we have Yuval Noah Harari or Sam Harris as possibly opposite poles of what could happen. But leaving technology aside and looking at humanity and our relationship with each other and with the more than human world, what's present and what's been let go of in this new future? So if I were to imagine that humanity in the 10 years, and I would say, you said something, you said, don't let technology take us. And I would really reframe that as let's go back to you have Schumacher's appropriate technology. Let's not let technology take us anywhere. Let's mm-hmm. take technology to where we want to go. Technology is simply a means. It's a tool. And it it's bad or good depending on our both our um our intention and then the impact of that technology. So if if there's technology back from the Stone Age that's beautiful and amazing that's still useful for our human and planetary flourishing. Mm. Great. There's nothing wrong with that simply because it's old. And, and I think actually returning to a lot of ancient wisdom and knowledge is a beautiful thing. And yet there's advancement in technology. That's also very helpful and beautiful. So it's all about our intention behind the technology, how we use it and what the impact of that is. So I will say that. And I I will also say, you know, this question of a return uh, would we return towards the Stone Age or what is 10 years? It, it it allows me to go to the place of questioning progress, development. What is it? And again, we just have to change the goal of that, that mm. progress is not simply more GDP, more income per person, more material and financial wealth. Mm. So what is it? It's greater happiness and contentment and well-being. So in in this case, it's interesting, like, for example, people returning towards workout routines from 
Stone Age peoples or diets, right, <laughs> from Stone Age peoples. It's it's hmm. actually yeah, okay. it's saying yep. there may be good reason for some of the diets and ways of living that actually did bring more human health and flourishing. And another example of this is when I was in Bhutan, there was a community where they were largely unmonetized. So there wasn't a financialization of their economy. And when a young couple wanted mm. to come together in partnership, like a marriage, the community came together and built a home for them. They didn't have to save up money for a down payment. They didn't have to go to a bank. Wow. The community came together and built it for them. And then they had a home. That type of thing. Sure, we could look at that as a, you know, a going back to a past or whatever. But actually, there's certain values inherent in that and technologies of participation and non-monetized economy and 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 cooperation that kind of barn raising sense that's actually quite beautiful and we could absolutely mm -hmm. draw from that in our modern regenerative equitable economies but today we'd have maybe more resources and things that would be helpful i was actually walking down the street yesterday and i saw this beautiful um old house like barn in a in the lorenzo valley next to the san lorenzo uh, river and yet it had a really uh, met metallic roof, like this hard corrugated metallic roof. And I looked at it and I was like, that's my first instinct, but that's so sad. I wish that was wood because it would look so much more idyllic if it were wood. Mm -hmm. And the person I was walking with said, yeah, huh. but the wildfires, that's actually the fireproofing needed so that that house won't burn when it comes to fire season in the fall. You know, so it, it was interesting because in my in wow. my return to past, in my mind, I wanted us to all be in these beautiful wooden little houses in, in kind of a shire-like environment. But the technology that we've adapted for that roof allows us to stay safe. And mm. unfortunately, we have to do that because of climate change and because of the wildfires that are getting more significant. But right. that was an interesting example of use, use of technology to be helpful and yet my kind of tension with wanting to live in the ways of the past. Yeah, because because our conditioning tells us that that houses that look old are, so, are very beautiful, and they are, but you're right, it's practicality also works. And then if we were looking at the circularity, we'd have to work out where the tin came Absolutely. from on the roof and how it had been mined and what might happen to it when its life came to an end. Interesting. So... I'm thinking that Bhutan sounds amazing and not being monetized and no financialization of the economy sounds extraordinary. And I'm remembering a friend who is a violin maker and who went to the Mennonites, I think, in the States. And he used to go a lot to Europe, to Germany and Norway. And he said that amongst the Mennonites, he had the most culture shock he'd ever had because every decision was made on the basis of whether or not the action benefited the community, and nobody discussed the cost at all. And he was just not used to being around that way of thinking. And I, I'm fairly certain we probably won't get to a non-monetized economy, but if we could get to an economy where money was used differently, it seems to me that we'd be at an advantage. Partly because I still get very stuck on the idea that eight white men own more of the dollars in the world than 50% of the poorest people. And I think the day we all turn around and go, you know what, dollars are not worth anything anymore. We have a different currency that works for us, sorry. 
is the day the power balance changes. Making that happen would be harder. But if we were creating our interesting future, and you're absolutely right, technology is a tool. I was really meaning I didn't want us to get lost into what technology may or may not do within 10 years, because that's fairly unknowable. But let's assume that we've brought our values to it and our intentions are to be regenerative, to flourish, to make sure that the more than human world flourishes. As an economist, can you envisage ways of managing the financial systems that are regenerative? So I'm guessing, for instance, that the financial markets, which currently seem to control people's behaviours, wouldn't exist. Certainly in my future, they wouldn't exist, but I'm wondering would they exist in your future? One of the most inspiring books and ideas that I'm contemplating right now is a book called How on Earth? A Not-for-Profit World by 2050. And it's written by Donnie McLaren and Jennifer Hinton. And it's all about imagining what if there was there were no businesses, as in profit-maximizing businesses, uh, businesses that really are, exist to create profit, and really just imagining all nonprofits. So what that does is it flips money and profit as a means to an end and not an end in itself. So that means that the making of money, whether through a business or individually, is only in service for social and environmental good. So I love thinking about this. I love imagining this is this is the world that I imagine this. We wake up and all of a sudden any anything that was a business, let's take a pizza place, let's take um Amazon, like anything. Instead of working to get a profit, what they would do is they would work towards paying their workers fair and living wages. They would work on ethical and sustainable supply chains and good quality products that serve people on the planet and any profit after that. So after rent is paid, uh, expenses for the materials are paid and wages are paid, anything after that would 100% go to a social, a mission-driven organization, whether it's social or ecological. So that would both serve the fact that people and businesses would be no longer profit-oriented and would instead go to, you know, mission-driven causes. But it would also support all of the all of those of us who are working in nonprofit or charity spaces who have to be in this rat race of finding funding to do our work. And mm-hmm. we either have to compromise our work to reach the grant goals or the recording or the, you know, all of that type of thing, or ask for donations, right? And we know from mm. Anand Gerdidas' book, uh, Winners Take All, that the foundations and the whole grant system are really set up to serve the status quo, and that a lot of foundations wouldn't ever, ser- wouldn't ever support or fund projects that actually would disrupt or change the economic systems so that those billionaires and millionaires and, and wealthy people wouldn't still benefit. So this idea of a not-for-profit economy would also serve that and would make the social and environmental good projects more sustainable and more able to do what they need to do. Very interesting. So if the, let's say, the 
pizza place, the unnamed pizza place, it gives all this extra money after its rent. So do we have rent caps? Because otherwise it seems to me that that the people who own the rents are still going to be extracting them. That was one question. And the other question is, is there any extra mechanism to ensure that the pizza place or maybe the car manufacturer is working in a way that is regenerative in this system? How do we how do we help them to find a regenerative way of pursuing their business? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things that would have to happen. So yeah, let's let's take a let's take an example. I used to work for a rape crisis center, right? We struggled to get funding. Obviously, it's it's hard to there's nothing we could sell mm. for that, right? So let's imagine we we sat next to a pizza place and we said to the pizza place, uh, 100% of your profits, can they go to us? And they said, sure. So I wonder if that simple change in the business structure would cause them to think, okay, our our creation of this pizza business is no longer to serve the owner or the shareholders, right? However it's owned. And it's no longer to give profit to them, but it is to end sexual violence in our community, right? Whether that would change the mindset. But I also agree with you, like, how could they also change that business so that that the ingredients of the pizza are organic or regenerative, right? So yes, I would hope that that would change too. But yeah, so both the, the purpose of the business, but also the type of business, um, you know, hopefully that could change. And I think that would take a mindset shift. And and I think if if folks can change their uh, perception of progress and development so that they are, like I said, they're paid a living wage, they're paid adequately, so they're getting um, enough, right? So this goes into contentment and sufficiency level, right? If they're getting mm-hmm. that, then I would hope that they would then have the capacity to care for that their business is supporting this rape crisis center and also that their business is regenerative and 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 equitable, right? The the question about rent is is definitely an interesting one. And so, you know, this also this question about what is a living wage, right? Um, because could the pizza place pay themselves exorbitantly and really never give anything to the uh, to the yeah. rape crisis center? So this would take, like I said, a re- revaluing of what is enough. And we know that income and and happiness are only correlated. They do go up a little bit. They go up uh, together until a certain point, and then they plateau where more money does not necessarily equal more happiness. So it would take a real felt realization of that. Um, and I would hope that that also would happen for the the person who's the owner who's receiving the rent, right? Um, if they mm. also had an amount that, that was content for them. Um, but, you know, the other, the kind of the, the, not the downside, but the blind spots to this idea are one of them, which people have brought up to me, which is really good, is what about the what about governments, right? What mm. what what is our collective, our commons responsibility to social and environmental good? So should a rape crisis center be only reliant on this pizza place, or should the public have any? Uh, should they have to do anything for that? What nonprofits or what uh, social and or, and environmental uh, organizations should be funded by the government and what should be funded in this more not-for-profit business model. That, I would say, would need to come from a more participatory democracy type of thing. And again, could be contextualized by place. Can you explain for people what a participatory democracy is? Because that's not something that we've explored on the podcast yet. 
Yeah, I'm just imagining, I'm imagining a town or a city. Let's take your town or city. And if you just imagine the nonprofits or charities that exist there, let's imagine there's one that supports adults and children with disabilities. There's a rape crisis center. There's one that supports environmental conservation work. And there's one that supports, you know, archery for children in low-income communities something like that. Now, what if the community can't, we're, we're able to come together and participatory democracy can look like participatory budgeting, or it's just a way for more democracy so that voting or so that democracy isn't just voting every, let's say four years, for example, it's a more engaged civic responsibility where being a part of decisions is actually uh, expected of people. So that could look like the local government doing a participatory process, getting feedback from the public as to these are the nonprofits in the community, which ones should be funded by public money and which ones should be funded by this not-for-profit business model, right? It could be that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, sometimes people are using technology so that you can uh, vote, like you could rank like this, this, this program should definitely be funded in this way. This one is least important, right? And so we could use technology mm -hmm. to make these decisions. But basically, it's just simply getting more public buy-in more often so that we're having, again, participatory democracy and not just representational democracy, which is that voting for a representative who then makes all the decisions for you. The, the community then might say, um, we have taxes at this rate. Um, these are the you know, five nonprofits or areas in our community that, that people have come together to do this work. We want to support the um, uh, people and children with disabilities, the Rape Crisis Center, and the Environmental Conservation. But the after-school, like, archery and arts and crafts programs, let's utilize a, an existing business's profit to support and run those. You know, maybe, like, right. if they get a lower... Uh, amount one year, it's not as critical to a rape crisis center or environmental conservation, for example. But I, what I'm saying is that a community would, would have the opportunity to decide that. Or they might say, actually, all of these are important. We need to raise the taxes because they're all very important to our community's health and well-being. Okay. This is, it sounds like a kind of neoliberal Marxism. It's really interesting. Um, and I've been looking up that book while you were talking, and it doesn't seem to be out yet? Or am I not looking at the right one? So it is not out yet, but what happens is there is a place where you can, on the website, where you can download the uh, the PDF of the book oh, okay. in a, a draft copy. I will put notes in the show notes so people can go and look. Because we're touching up against the concept of money, the concept of profit, the concept of taxation. And it seems to me there's two possible ways to get there. And one would be to look at something like Christian Felber's work with his book Change Everything, where taxation becomes proportional or inversely proportional to the commitment to life, let's say, of the company. So if you have a car company that has no circularity, that has a huge disparity between the highest paid and the lowest paid, where the women do all the cleaning and the men are all in the boardroom, and where they're producing cars that are gas-guzzling CO2 nightmares, it would be taxed very, very heavily compared to a similar car manufacturer, which has, let's say, a 20 to 1 ratio between the top pay and the lowest pay, where they have racial and gender and ability equalities uh, 
throughout and where they're endeavouring to produce cars within a circular economy that minimise fossil fuel use, and they would be taxed minimally. And in that way, you use taxation as a way of encouraging behaviour within what is still essentially a capitalist system. And listening to you, we're we're still talking about a profit-based system where having a job is what enables you to participate in this. And it seems a way away from the ideas of a universal basic income or universal basic services. And you've clearly been thinking about this a lot. And so I tend to end up on the side of universal basic services with a small universal basic income and absolutely rigid rent caps as a way of freeing people up from having to do work that they possibly, it may be the people working in this pizza, our our nominal pizza place, don't really enjoy it. And I I certainly know a lot of people during lockdown seemed to be coming to the realisation that the jobs they did, one, they loathed them, and two, they were completely unnecessary. And I, that was where my hope that things might change was arising, was people going, you know, I just don't want to go back to working in a call centre in the middle of Birmingham because it's completely pointless and I hated it. Let me go and volunteer on this, on, on Abel's farm in West Wales instead. Doesn't seem to be happening, but I wonder if we could push it that way. So this is a very long way round of saying, do you prefer the model, what are we calling it, this not-for-profit world by 2050, as opposed to a universal basic income, universal basic service model? First, do you prefer that? And second, are we going to use taxation as a way of encouraging people to move towards flourishing or are we hoping that the values are somehow intrinsic? So to the first question, I, I've i been able to look into universal basic income and did a two-part radio documentary on this and got to speak with so many wonderful people on this. Mm. And I really did really appreciate like what happens for people when you when you decouple income and productivity and what it does because it frees people and maybe your listeners already know this but when people receive a universal basic income in the studies that have been done they may stop working for a short period of time due to burnout or just kind of finding themselves again but almost every single time, 100% of the time, people find a way to then contribute to society meaningfully. Uh, And some of that's monetized and some of that's not. So this does take a revaluing of what we call work and including, you know, what maybe feminist economists would say is also work, such as care work and parenting. So it does take that. But what I'm saying is that people do return to some sort of contribution because contributing to society and to the world is, is, is a need that we have. So I've really appreciated about that, about universal basic income. I did have a conversation recently, though, with Gopal Dianini, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Movement Generation in the Bay Area. And when I spoke with him about universal basic income, he brought up the universal basic services that you shared. So having, instead of a universal basic income, having universe, access to universal basic services, such as education and healthcare. But he also brought up an interesting point about having universal access to commons. Oh, yes. And in this, he's talking about uh, access to land to be able to grow food, uh, access to parks for recreation or beaches or forests. Uh, I'm actually shocked sometimes when I travel around the world how some places, almost all of the forests are private. You know, either I remember being in Belgium and they're all hunting 
for hunting and they're all privately owned or even in the East Coast in some places, there's all this wilderness, but it's all privately owned. So having access, universal access to commons is another one that I found really helpful. So all of that, I, I would agree that a combination of all that, and there is definitely, a, there are beautiful proposals for progressive universal basic incomes that I think would be very helpful. So that that being said, I do work as a right livelihood coach. So I do work with individuals on how they can find work that they find meaningful and, and, and valuable, how they can work with greater integrity. And one thing that I do ask mm. them is, you know, how much money do you need? You know, like, what is your need? Right. Because I did say that, you know, happiness and income are correlated up to a certain amount. So asking them, what is it that they need? And then once I do that, I ask them, what are the ways that you could meet your needs non-monetized? Because sometimes people don't explore that, mm. right? So sometimes people say, actually, yeah, I could be gardening more and that could be helping with my food. Or I could join or start a babysitting co-op or you know collective so that we're taking turns watching each other's kids in the neighborhood and not paying for childcare, right? Or I could do some sort of yeah. work trade for either food or some sort of services. So there are ways, non-monetized ways that we can meet our needs. Um, and actually there's a lot of like uh, buy nothing groups or, you know, trade groups mm. and, and all of that. So it's very beautiful. So there are a lot of ways that we can meet our needs in non-monetized ways. This being said, I've also come to appreciate that there are some people who are entrepreneurial, that actually they love uh, starting projects, starting businesses even, um, they love the, the marketing, the sales. There's an art to that. There's a communication to that. And when I think about it, I do think, you know, there are some things that uh, maybe could still be on the market, that there are things that could still be monetized. Uh, you know, maybe we want access to glasses, like glasses to be able to see, to be part of vision care. But what about sunglasses? What about certain uh, you know, excess goods that are maybe not necessary, but make life beautiful. Uh, maybe, maybe those could still be uh, monetizable. But, you know, what if those people sold them and they were able to, because like I said, there are people who are entrepreneurial. What if they were able to sell them and make enough to live a healthy and sustainable life, but any sort of profit, meaning excess, meaning beyond that, which makes them happy, where it starts to get greedy or unnecessary, um, that is then given hmm. to people doing work that is much more for social or environmental good. So they're supporting that. So, you know, I've seen a lot of examples of like, like one example is in, in San Francisco, there's a bar called the, uh, the interval, I believe. And it's a really hit bar, beautiful, like really good, uh, small batch and craft cocktail type of thing. And they pay their employees well. Their ingredients are locally and independent and beautifully sourced. And yet 100% of the profits after they pay their workers and their foul that goes literally above where there's a uh, the Long Now Foundation, which does conservation work. Um, it's Stuart Brand hmm. is, his, is his organization, the research and environmental conservation. So that's an example of, you know, those folks who, who run the bar, I don't know if they're happy. I don't know if they love it. I don't know if they're happy to be in quarantine and not working, but I do know people who actually do love running a bar or bartending or food service yeah. or sales of some sort. And so if they can do that, great. If they can meet their needs, their financial and monetary needs, great. And meet their needs in other ways, great. And if they generate a profit that then goes to an environmental conservation and research organization, great. Yeah. 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's interesting how fast I get to, yeah, but are sunglasses sustainable? Um, but let's assume that we can make sunglasses in a way that is both circular and regenerative. I am assuming that completely. Regenerative and circular economics are crucial, right? Regenerative yeah. being yeah. that we are replenishing the, the natural resources that we're taking out. Also that in that extraction of resources that the people are fairly compensated, you know, a living wage. Uh, we're mm. not, you know, extractively mining or destroying communities like let's say coltan in Africa. Or, or destroying ecosystems either. Or destroying ecosystems completely, of course. Yes. So I am, I am assuming that, that, that people are thinking, whenever I say the supply chains, I'm thinking about that regenerative and circular supply chains. And all of that, and and I do have to say though too, um, the the beauty there's a there's a beautiful film called No Impact Man with Colin Bevaman, and and it's also a book. And in that film, Colin says he tries to live for a year with his family in New York City without any impact on the planet, and he does all these really really entertaining things mm. to just live with less and less impact and try to have no impact. And of course, he realizes he can't have no impact on the planet. Just, you know, we're, we're interbeing. Yeah. We have impact. Even if he died, he, he would, his body would have impact on the planet. So instead, he realizes it's about having a positive impact. It's about having an ecological handprint as well as our ecological footprint. Oh, lovely. So in your, in your idea of like what you said about, oh, do we stop cutting trees? Um, which, by the way, I don't know if you said that pre-interview or not. But, you know, instead it's like there are ways that we can do agriculture, we can do agroforestry, we can um, we can work with ecosystems that actually make them even more healthy and vibrant and regenerative. Hmm. Humans are not necessarily this um, evil thing that just destroys everything. Like we actually can work yeah. with nature through our through our technologies, our appropriate technologies. So I absolutely feel that we could um, we could have the things that we would like, such as sunglasses, in ways that actually are regenerative and part of circular economies. Yeah. And I am totally applauding and helpful. You know, I love the people who are those inventors and ecological systems designers and ecological um, mm. product designers. Beautiful. Yeah. And if we've done the work of connecting ourselves on a spiritual level to the more than human world, then we can begin to ask the question, what do you need of me? And there, I am sure, very creative things that we could be doing. If nothing else, we and future generations could probably spend the next century or two cleaning up. I, I discovered the other day that... Um, Plastic rain is the new acid rain, that there are actually micro particles of plastic raining out of the sky now. So we need somehow to clean that up. Um, so there's probably quite a lot of that that could easily be done. Um, and when we talk about access to forests, one, one of the things that I found really quite distressing as lockdown eased here, I hadn't realised how quiet it had become until a squad of 30 motorbikes decided that that racing around the village lanes again was a fun thing to do. And that was one of those despairing moments of, you haven't got it, have you guys? You really? I'm not sure that going as fast as possible on a motorbike simply for the fun of doing that, not because you absolutely need to get from A to B, 
is a regenerative act. And when you said access to forests, the image that went through my head was 30 motorbikes burning through some virgin forest somewhere. And I was thinking, no, no. But we are assuming in this amazing future that we're building that we're creating a future in which turning towards life, to where one's actions are flourishing, sustainable, equitable, regenerative, where our handprint is creative on the world, has become a spiritual need almost. It's certainly self-reinforcing. And where the opposite of that, actions that are destructive either to ourselves, other people, or the more than human world, has become taboo, not just as in socially taboo, but internally taboo, such that we wouldn't consider doing them. Because otherwise, I don't see how this system works. We have to have a social and personal and spiritual consensus that regenerative is where we're heading. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. So I do think it is a need to turn towards that. I would also like to invite people to feel it in themselves, to sense what would Mm. it feel like to turn towards life? What would that regenerative economic system look and feel like? And I would hope that they would feel that it isn't a lack or a scarcity or that they're giving up right? And then instead it is a joy and that they're actually turning towards something. So I do have to say it, it is a uh, thinking about happiness differently, um, possibly mm. differently. And it, this reminds me of the, the definition of happiness in Bhutan. The former prime minister, Jigme Tinley, he said, true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only right. from living in harmony with nature, serving others, and realizing the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. Now, I know that might not be everyone's definition of happiness, but I invite people to try that on to see how that feels mm. for them. And if it does feel good, then to turn towards that. So this this is also yes. reminding me that you know you and I, I would like to think we're not speaking about truth with a capital T. We're not trying to indoctrinate or say that other people's views are wrong or bad. We're just saying if human and planetary flourishing are the goal, if we want to sustain life, if we want a thriving people and planet, then choose, choosing to turn towards life in this way, choosing to turn both personally, spiritually, you know, inside our minds and also systemically towards more regenerative and equitable futures, that that is what will bring that, that better world. Now, we have to choose that. And we know that we could choose otherwise. And it's not about what's right or wrong. It's that if we want this human and planetary flourishing, this is the way to go. This is the way towards that. Yes, thank you. And I am therefore thinking that in the future that we're building, the Rape Crisis Centre funded by the Pizza Hut won't actually be necessary because rapes will not be happening. Absolutely. That would be a really good thing to aim for. Thank you. Yeah, no, um, let, let's bring that out. Yes, that... Um, the goal of a lot of these nonprofits, I should really stress this, the goal of these nonprofits is that they don't need to exist in the future. You yeah. know, for a lot of them, for yeah. some of them, I mean, you know, supporting adults and children with disabilities, that might be something that, you know, is always a need. Although, of course, yeah, maybe that's not an excess thing or an extra thing, sorry, but it's actually in par- like part of our holistic education model, right? <laughs> our community yeah. model. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And then, so as we're drawing to a close, I can imagine people listening, I hope, 
thinking forward to our future and thinking that feels and sounds like a future I would like to live in. For individual people listening, how do we begin to make the transition from having a mortgage to pay, having the realities of living in the current financial and economic system, and we want to move towards the more flourishing future that our hearts know is possible. Are there steps that people could begin to make here and now that would help us collectively to move towards that? Yes. So one thing that I will invite folks to do is to check in with a framework inspired or brought to get brought to us by Manfred Max Neef, the Chilean economist. And this came up for me actually, Amanda, when you were speaking about the people riding the motorcycles through the forest. So what Manfred Max Neef offers us and what I invite listeners to think about is what are your needs? What are your needs as a human? And what are your needs right now? And then what are the ways that you satisfy those needs? What are the ways that you satisfy those needs successfully? It, it actually works. You, um, you're feeling a need for connection and you ask for a hug. And now you have a hug and your need for connection is met. But what are those pseudo satisfiers? So what are those ways that you try to meet a need, but you don't really? Now, this is individual and I'm not judging anyone. But for me, when I'm feeling the need for connection and I turn towards the tub of ice cream, that does not meet my need for connection. <laughs> I'm not shaping or blaming anyone who wants a tub of ice cream. There may be other needs that are met with a tub of ice cream, but not my need for connection. So what are the needs? What are the ways we pseudo satisfy? Then what are the we what are the ways that we violate some of our other needs through our actions or behaviors? And what are the ways that we violate other people's needs through our actions and behaviors? And what are the needs, what are the ways that we try to meet our needs that we actually violate the planet's needs? So for example, mm. if I am having a need for connection uh, or for a sense of ease and I smoke a cigarette. Now we know that smoking a cigarette actually does not satisfy our need for ease. It actually makes us more anxious, right? Mm. And it would actually violate yeah. our need for health, right? So there's that example. What about if I have a need for uh, for um, adventure? And so I hire someone to take me on a safari tour to shoot an endangered animal. Okay, that that is a way mm. that's meeting my need for adventure, but it's completely violating their needs and the planet's needs, for example. So I'm just yeah. asking that of like, the, for example, the people driving through the forest, that there, there was probably a need that they were trying to meet, probably community connection, adventure, fun. If it is, and I don't know, but if it is violating the planet's needs or the community's needs, what are the other ways that they can meet that need that would be more helpful? So I invite your listeners to think about that. I also invite your listeners to, as you've pointed out, to connect more and more with the more than human world, to get more in touch, to really listen, utilize whatever left of this quarantine, whatever left of this more quiet time that we have to listen deeply to the more than human world. Listen to what it wants, listen to what it's calling of us as individuals and collectively, and to listen to how we can make these decisions, whether it's through journeying, so shamanic journeying, or through simply being in nature and asking these questions and being with and being in relation. So I invite people to continue to cultivate that relationship. Then I also invite people, as I said in the beginning, to really try to see systemically so in this goes back to the meeting your needs, but also collectively, what are our systems? How can we stretch our mind to see who all, what all is impacted by our decisions, by our ways of living? 
how can we see ourselves as actually part of structural racism, for example, or as part of climate change, right? And what are the ways that our actions can have ripple effects to create more human and planetary flourishing? And then lastly, you know, there is this beautiful dichotomy between the personal and the systemic. So I just want to encourage folks to, I'm sure you are doing this, but to just not simply think about your own individual lives as in your behaviors and your consumption patterns, for example, although they are very important. It would be beautiful if folks stopped supporting Amazon and 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 started to support more local and independent businesses and eat organically and fair trade. Of course, that's all beautiful. And I hope that folks can do that. And we also need to change our systems. So how can people also be involved in our systemic change through political processes, through policymaking, through activism, through organizing? So I just encourage folks to both act personally as well as systemically in, in the areas that they care about. That is magical. I, I, it's too late now, but I can imagine you and I having another podcast looking at how can we affect political change and what does the politics of the future look like? Because participatory politics is a big subject in and of its own and getting there will be very, very interesting. Let's do that at some point, but but not now. That feels like a really good place to end and it feels really complete so that people have ideas of what they can do now and they have a sense of a goal towards which we could forge our path. Is there anything left that you would like to offer people before we finish? I guess if we were to kind of um, give a teaser for that next conversation, I would say this is on my mind a lot. I I remember learning about uh, in Hawaii the taxes that were once paid to the king for the, from the people to the king were actually once thought of as like a gift to the commons, a gift to the community that like that like people giving of their of the profits of their labor to the whole to the community so that others could have needs met so that the commons could be taken care of were actually seen as like a joy or a gift and i just i really think about that reframing of of taxes of course right now where where our taxes go is a whole separate issue and of course they're causing a lot of suffering but I just wonder, mm. like, re- I invite people to rethink taxes and also government. I, I see so much right now of a very, like, anti-government feel, like the government leaders are bad or government is bad. And I just, I would love to see how people could start to see themselves as part of government. Government ought mm. to be our our representation to help make our decisions that are good for the collective whole. So if folks are not feeling that, how can we get involved more, either by running for office ourselves or getting politically involved or joining groups that do that kind of um, uh, advocating for and working with government to create change that we wish to see? Mm. So I do I do think that this question of how do we affect government change and how do we just rethink what is government, what is taxes and what is democracy? I think these are really juicy questions for right now yes. and beyond. Yes. And then we also need to rethink the media because how we hear about what our government is and does and what the echo chambers are saying is a, is a crucial part. The narratives that we build around this absolutely, and that are built for us is a really key part. Oh, lots of future podcasts. So Della, thank you. I think that, yeah, as I said before, it feels really complete and beautiful 
And I think we have built a vision for the more beautiful future that our hearts know is possible. We just need to get there now. That feels great. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Manda. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Della Duncan for taking us places that really stretched my understanding of where we could go as a society, as a culture. I hope they stretched yours too, because one of the real joys of making this podcast for me is being able to talk to really sharp, thoughtful people who can take us to places we haven't been before, who can open doors and show us ways of being that are enticing and inspiring. And my real hope is that that's what we're doing for you, that we're showing a different future that we could attain if enough of us really worked for it. And yet again, Della and I talked on after we ended the recording, mostly this week, about politics and how to reframe the nature of governance in a way that is genuinely regenerative and that works for us and not against us or against the rest of the more than human world. And I am really looking forward to recording that as a podcast too. So we will go with that, even if it's an extra slotted in. In the meantime, though, there are links in the show notes to Manfred Max Neef and to the 2050 book on how to create a not-for-profit world. And I really invite you to explore that website. It looks really inspiring and yet another way of opening ourselves up to alternative possibilities. For those of you who want to go there, the show notes are on the podcast page of our website, which is accidentalgods.life. There's a transcript there and all of the previous podcasts. We will be back next week with somebody else. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to see what she's created, that address again is accidentalgods.life for the show notes, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations that are in the pandemic resources, and the Accidental Gods membership portal, which is a structured program designed to give everyone the opportunity to connect with the more-than-human world, to take us forward into conscious evolution in ways that are grounded and authentic and possible from where we are now. So if you know anyone who would like to be active in bringing about the more beautiful world our hearts do know is possible, please send them this link. Otherwise, that's it for now. See you again next week. Thank you and goodbye.